Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, I am grateful, Josh. Uh, Josh wasn't supposed to be here with us today, and uh, Josh, you did a super job leading. This was Josh's first trip leading a uh, mission trip. This was fi- Kyle's first time on an airplane, uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah. A long one, yeah, my goodness, 14 hours, so you want to get used to it, get used to it. So anyhow, um, thank you guys for your service. I know that Jeff and Linda have already communicated to us um, just what a blessing it is for them to, to kind of take a deep breath and let some other people minister for a while, and, and so they are refreshed and grateful. So thank you guys, um, we appreciate it. Um, let's pray for them. Also, next Saturday, or next Saturday morning, we have our Women's Christmas Tea event. Uh, which is an outreach event. We're pushing 150 women at that event, uh, which is, uh, I think, the largest we've ever had. And I'm sure if we're typical Americans, we'll all sign up today uh, because we sign up late. And so we'll probably get a whole bunch today. So those guys will be doing their sign-ups out in the hall, as was mentioned earlier. Uh, Let's fill it up. And the thing we want to be praying about is it's not just like, hey, let's get together. It'll be fun. It'll be nice. We'll think warm thoughts with each other. It's a gospel outreach. And lots of people come to it. Lots of uh, women come. It's the best outreach we have done as a church. We always do as a church each year. Uh, this is the best one as far as a number of non-believing people that come. Um, so, and, they, and they call us. Can I come to your thing? You know, because people like Christmas and all that kind of stuff. So let's just pray. Ready? Let's go. Father, we, uh, we look forward to what you would do. And Lord, you know our hearts. You know our desire. We believe you've placed those desires within us. We, we desire to see men, women, young people come to know Jesus Christ. Lord, and in our culture, a lot of people know about Jesus Christ. Our desire is that they would be transformed from the inside by Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that they, you would use uh, this event. You would bless, Lord, each of the women that will be sharing their testimony of how Christ has and is impacting their lives. And you would use the words that are spoken Lord, to open up people's hearts and minds to their need for a Savior and that Christ alone is that Savior. And so, Lord, even this week, be preparing hearts. Father, we pray for uh, the men, the women, the young people over in Kenya. Lord, we think of uh, Kyle's story about how uh, that group of people stood up and raised their hands about pledging to honor you with their lives, their marriages, all those things. And, Lord, we do pray Lord, that you would be solidifying that commitment. Lord, in the deepest places, that their lives would be built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Continue to bless Jeff and Linda and Faith, Christian, as he travels over there. Lord, their outreach, their work, their ministry. And bless these uh, six that have returned. And Lord, certainly refresh them, help their bodies to acclimate to our time zone, all those kinds of things. But Lord, I do pray that the things that they've learned and taken from their time apart ministering, Lord, they would begin to apply those things, Lord, into their daily life here. And that you would use them in the lives of other people, not just abroad, but here. We ask that for each of us. We pray your blessing on our time in your word. Minister to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would please turn with me to Mark chapter 7 in your Bibles, it's where we are. We have made it through Mark chapter 6. It took, yes, it took us four weeks, but we graduated from chapter 6 to chapter 7. And it's interesting, if you look at the beginning verses of chapter 6, 
Jesus's friends, if you will, are gathering to him. And those friends are going to help him uh, in the ministry that he is doing. An interesting thing occurs in chapter 7, as we're going to be looking at today. It's not his friends that are gathering to him. Now it's his adversaries that are gathering to him. And they're coming in, they're pressing in, they're going to start questioning him and his decisions and all of that kind of stuff. And whereas his friends, their desire was to help him, these adversaries, their desire is going to be to oppose him and to hinder the work that he is doing. And we see today how Jesus responds to it. Let me open up with these verses. Verse 1, starting through verse 8. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now in parentheses, verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, unless, excuse me, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Verse 5, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave, he says, the commandment of God, and you hold to the tradition of men. So a confrontation, obviously. Jesus has called them hypocrites. That doesn't usually go over very well uh, with your audience and things like that. The scribes and the Pharisees. Now we've been introduced to the scribes and the Pharisees before they sort of come in and out of the picture the scribes and the Pharisees as, as a whole would have uh, been down in the area of Jerusalem. We saw in Mark chapter 3, they made their way up to the Galilee region. We see, I think it's Mark chapter, late Mark chapter 1, that they come in, they're interacting with Jesus. And so they have made their way now to Christ. The scribes were the experts in the law of Moses. All right? Some places, in some versions, are called lawyers. They're experts in the law, not of the legal law, but the law of Moses. And so that are our scribes. And in addition to being experts in the law, they're also experts in the traditions. So things that aren't necessarily written in the Bible, but this is how they've been interpreted over the centuries, and this is what a good Jew should be doing. The scribes know those things. The Pharisees, they were a religious sect. They were a strict religious sect, and they pledged, quote, to spend all their lives observing every detail of the scribal law. So these two groups of people, they go hand in hand with one another. They work with one another. And as you see there in verse 1, they had come up from Jerusalem, or come from Jerusalem, it says there. They're an official delegation. They've been sent out to find out about this Jesus, to put a stop to this Jesus, uh, to begin to you know, talk about this Jesus so he'll be less influential. Now, again, remember the context, chapter 6, Jesus had just sent his disciples out in teams of two, six different groups going out and about the area of the Galilee. That word now began of what they were doing and of who they were preaching about, Jesus. Jesus' name became known, the scripture says. And so people are familiar, more familiar again. There's a stir about who Jesus is. Remember the, the passage said that even uh, Jesus' name became known even to Herod. And so the word is filtering out again about this Jesus guy. And so once again, down in Jerusalem, they say, send up a team, put a stop to this. We saw in another place, Mark chapter 3, that at one point they had determined, and eventually they would fulfill, 
their decision was they not only opposed Jesus, they wanted to destroy Jesus. And that word literally means to kill him. They wanted to put an end to him, not just destroy his ministry by spreading some rumors or something. They wanted to kill him. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they're not uh, friends of Jesus, if you will. They're his adversaries. And they've come to find fault with the Lord. So they're not coming to check him out to see, you know, maybe we were wrong about him. Maybe he really is a good guy. We should go listen to him. They, they've come to find fault. And they're ready to point out what the first thing that they can find. You'll see that there uh, in verse 2. It says, they saw some of his disciples that they ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, the oral tradition was that the Jewish people uh, were to go through this very elaborate ceremony of washing their hands from uncleanness. Now, we're not referring to you know, physical dirt. We're not talking about your mom saying, go wash your hands before you come to the table. We're talking about the rituals, the processes that the scribes, the Pharisees practice, the scribes put in place um, for washing away the defilement of sin that came up into a person's life. And that was the oral tradition of the rabbis. Now, what these disciples, or excuse me, what these scribes and Pharisees are doing is they're saying, Jesus, your disciples, the people you're teaching, the people that look to you to know what to do, they don't wash the way they're supposed to wash. So who's really at fault? Who are they blaming? They're blaming Jesus, all right, inadvertently saying, we watch your disciples. They don't follow the rules that we follow. And so if the disciples don't do it, what does that say of the discipler? That's what they're coming out here. And again, we're not talking about just washing before dinner. We're ta talking about the elaborate ritual. And you can go and you can read about it. There's a document called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is interesting. The Mishnah is a Jewish document that was assembled over the centuries. And essentially, it was the commentary of the interpretation. So you have the law, then the scribes interpret the law, then you have commentaries on the interpretations of the law. You understand what I'm saying? It's like that game with, a, you, you know, you tell a story, whisper down the lane or whatever, a telephone, and by the time you get whatever, you're like four people apart from it. He knows about it. All right, and so it's that particular game, and that's what they're doing. So now all they study, well, why bother studying the Bible? If I'm really just going to convey to you what the commentators say, stop reading my Bible, I'll just read the commentaries on the commentaries. Well, you see how you get further and further and further and further away from the truth? And so they have this elaborate ritual. It was done in this intricate way. It drew attention to a person. You hung your hands this way, and the water would drip, and you would do it, this, and this whole thing. Everyone's watching and looking, and wow, look how spiritually, oh my goodness, look at that, twice he watched, and all these things. And so these guys are drawing attention to themselves, and they have these rigidly enforced traditions that are interwoven with God's law. So there's a modicum of truth, there's a little bit of truth that is there, and everyone's like, well, I guess that's what it means. I mean, they would know. They're the scribes, they're the Pharisees, they're the experts in the law, who am I? I'm just a fisherman up here, and whatever it may be. Now, they come out and they criticize or they critique. Let's use that word to be nice. They critique Jesus. Now, the question I have is, is it wrong for these religious leaders to evaluate the ministry of Jesus? I would say no. Not initially, I would say no. It's not wrong for them to come out and to evaluate the ministry of Jesus. We know Jesus. 
We've been reading for 2,000 years, some of us have in this room, but we've been reading, you know, his works for hundreds of years or whatever. We know about Jesus, he's good, and so we could answer, like my brother here did, and Tony did, and said, oh, no, you can't question Jesus. But these guys don't know Jesus. They hadn't read all the Gospels and stuff. They're observing him. Jesus is new on the scene, and so they're religious leaders, and this is part of their job. It's all of our job. New teacher comes into town, new teaching comes into town. It's all of our job to look at that, to evaluate it, to compare it with the scripture. So what they're doing is technically fine. It's good. The problem is how they go about their evaluation. So again, as religious leaders, they have an obligation to look into these things, but the way they evaluated Jesus is completely wrong. And there's three things that I noticed. First is they had already made up their mind about Jesus. So this is not really evaluation. They had already determined Jesus is wrong. Go up there, find some things that are wrong with this guy, all right, and come back and report it to us. So that's the first problem. Number two is when information did become available that might have altered their previous determination about Christ. And so they go up, they observe him. Information might become available that's like, you know what? I thought this about him, but this guy's pretty good. He's pretty solid. Rather than changing their view, they instead... Uh, they hold on even more firmly to their position against him. And then the third reason why their evaluation of Jesus is off is they don't evaluate him against the measure of God's word. They evaluate him against the measure of their traditions. That's the third reason why these guys are off. The particular tradition, again, as we saw in this instance, is the way in which the disciples do or do not ceremonially, ritually wash their hands. Now, Mark, in verses 3 and 4, gives us a little parenthetical explanation. Now, remember, Mark, maybe, I don't know if I've said this at all, but Mark wrote to, primarily to Gentiles. That was sort of his uh, audience. And so as Gentiles, they may not be familiar with this, just as many of us in this room may not have been familiar with this ceremonial process. And so in parenthesis here, Mark adds, by the way, the Jews had this procedure, this ceremonial process where they wash their hands and their cups and their couches and all these other kind of things. Mark kind of throws that in for his reader that may not be aware of it. And what they have done, these Pharisees, these scribes, is they had created this very public and very detailed specific way that a person should wash the filth of their sin from them. Now, where did they pick up that sin? They picked up that sin in the marketplace. Now, they have to go to the marketplace, they have to buy their food, they have to interact with uh, dirty sinners, whether that be lesser Jews than them or Gentiles even. And so they need to wash all of that dirt off of them. And again, as I've said a few times, they did it in, elab in an elaborate way. Big show. <clears throat> Clear their throat. Everyone's going on over here. And here's this fellow rolling up his sleeves. And everyone's like, oh, wow. And he's very, very spiritual. He's come all the way from Jerusalem. And they communicate this idea that they are super spiritual, that they're super holy, and almost they're communicating this idea is that the only reason that they have any sin in their life anyway is because they came in contact with you people, and they have to wash that off, or with the Gentiles, or whatever it may be. And so for them then, and Jesus is going to get into this, and this is how I come to them, I'm not just making this stuff up, for them, sin was something outside of them that stained them. What Jesus is going to show them, and us, is sin is something that is inside of us that stains us. Look what Mark goes on in verse 5 to say. It says, now the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why don't your disciples walk 
according to the tradition of the elders. But they eat with defiled hands. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? You know, the better question for the Pharisees is why do we? Why do we follow these traditions? Why do we walk in these traditions? I, don't ask questions. Just do it. This is how righteousness is acquired. Just do it. And so instead of asking Jesus this question, why don't your disciples follow our rules? They should be asking themselves, why do we follow these rules? They've forgotten that altogether. They just do it. I think there's a variety of reasons why they do what they do. I think there's a variety of reasons why a lot of us do these little ritual things in our lives. One of the reasons is that they justified themselves in giving so much priority to their oral traditions, even if they were non-biblical, but they justified themselves in doing so because the Jews came up with an idea. It's not in the Bible, but they came up with an idea that when, when Moses came down from the mountain and he had the Ten Commandments, you've seen the movie, all right, um, and he comes down, that they say he gave the written law to Aaron and that he gave oral communication to Joshua and to the priest. Okay, you know who Joshua is. He would go on to lead after Moses. Now, the Bible doesn't say that anywhere, okay? But over the years, the Jews created this uh, story, essentially, this account to justify the oral tradition. And so somebody might come up with this idea, you need to do it this way. And, you know, some well-meaning person's like, well, why do you say that? You know, I've been going through my Bible, and I don't see it in my Bible. Well, that's the written tradition. You need to go back to the oral tradition. Oh, I didn't hear about the oral tradition. What passage is that? No, put that Bible away and just listen to us. You see how, where we're going? And so one of the reasons why the Jews were able to justify themselves in this non-biblical idea is because they created this story, essentially, about the oral law. It's not found in our Bibles. I, I think of how many religious movements, even Christian religious movements in our day, that they just create these accounts of things that supposedly happen to justify their doctrines. And the reality is how it typically works is this. They have a doctrine. People begin to wonder about it, question about it. They need some support of it. They pick up their Bibles as we should be doing. It's not found in there. And so they say, oh, well, this happened in 300 A.D. Or this happened in 500 A.D. Or this happened in 1500. And that becomes the justification for it. Not the case. Anyway, that's what these guys were doing. They honored the written law, but they gave greater honor, as Jesus says, to their oral law, their oral tradition. In that Mishnah that I mentioned to you, so again, the Mishnah is the interpretation of the laws and so on and so forth, the commentaries on it. Uh, it says this, it is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict scripture itself. I don't know if you stayed with me as I read that, but essentially, if the rabbi says one thing and the scripture says another thing, it is a greater offense to to contradict the rabbi than it is the word of God itself. That's in the Mishnah. It says, he who expounds the scripture in opposition to the tradition of the elders will have no part in the world to come. It, no wonder they believed it so strongly. Because if you didn't agree with it, you'd get to go to hell. It was their teaching. So again, you can contradict the scriptures. They, they gave authority to the written law, but they gave more authority to the oral tradition. That was more important. Second reason why they observe their tradition with such passion and fervor is because for them, in those rules and regulations, that became to them the essence of their religion. 
And by that, what I mean is in their mind to observe those rules and those regulations and those, uh, those particular procedures, that's how you pleased God, by keeping those rules, by keeping those regulations and traditions. And if you didn't keep those rules, regulations, and traditions, then you were out of fellowship with God. And so it's quite simple, actually. And you take all the guesswork out of your faith. All you got to do is follow these easy steps and out pops righteousness. Is that how it works, Christian? Have you discovered that to be the case? We know you can follow all sorts of rules and regulations and still be a jerk. And you can still have a hard heart and mistreat people and not be in fellowship with the Lord. To walk with Christ, and in their case to walk with God, instead of seeking, it means what it requires is seeking the Lord that we might walk in his ways. It requires humbling ourselves in prayer. You remember David's prayer? David said, search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there be any grievous way within me. That's painful, isn't it? That's a little bit annoying as a Christian because what what that means to me is I never stop growing and I want to be able to stop growing. I want to get to the place where there's no more conviction in my life. And I don't have to seek God because I have a rule here and I'm checking off. I did that and I did that and I did that and I did that. But the vibrancy of our faith is coming into his presence and saying, search me, O God, and know my heart. And find if there be any grievous way that is within me. And sometimes we get tired of doing that. And it's just a whole lot easier. Just give me a list of rules to follow. And I'll follow them. That's what these guys we're doing. They settled for a list of rules and a piece of paper. I've noticed that tendency in my life. I've noticed that tendency as I've been in the church for many years, not this one church in general, uh, following Christ, that a lot of people find it's a whole lot easier just to follow a bunch of rules instead of pursuing relationship with Christ. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? It's found in the New Testament. And he comes to Christ and he says, what must I do to be saved? You remember that story? I wanted to paraphrase him a bit as I was thinking about this. I think a lot of people come to Christ and they say, look, what must I do to be good with God, to be in a right place with God? Not just necessarily go to heaven and not to go to heaven, but just to be in a good place of fellowship with the Lord. What must I do to be good with God? And the conclusion oftentimes we draw are things like this. Well, you should give to the poor. You should attend a church service regularly. You should read a passage of scripture daily. And you should stay away from certain behaviors or inactivities. And if you follow those rules, then you are good to go. I said a few moments ago, we know this, right? You can do all those things. You can come to church every week, read your Bible every week, and shut it and don't remember what you read. Give it no thought whatsoever. You can follow all those rules and be very, very far from the Lord. G. Campbell Morgan, who uh, is truly one of my favorite commentators that I read, uh, he said this, and I thought he said it well. He said, it seems to us so much simpler just to live by rule than by principle. So much easier to find human sanction than to seek and discover God's will. So much to take an order from a priest or a pope or a council than to discover the will of God. And over the years, as I've uh, sort of discipled or mentored or worked with um, some new believers, that takes a lot of work doesn't it, to pour into a person's life? It does. And there have been times where I've been frustrated by the process. So you pour into someone's life, and then they get involved in something. Like, what are you doing? 
You know what? I just thought. No, don't think. That's what I want to say. There's no more thinking. And what I want to do is just write down on a piece of paper, these are the things you do, these are your things you don't do. Okay? We're done with this discipleship? You know, but it doesn't work that way. And whereas it would be a whole lot easier on my part to just put it all down on paper and have them follow those rules, what I know is they need to learn to seek the Lord for themselves and to develop convictions and to walk in those convictions. That's a lot harder for me as I pour into someone's life. And it's more frustrating. But that's what I needed to learn. And so you give me a list of rules, you give me 300 rules. I'm going to figure out how to get around with number 301. We're going to need another rule and another rule and another rule. But you teach me how to seek the heart of the Lord. You teach a person how to seek the heart of the Lord. You've just written down every rule. Does that make sense? I don't know if it does. I'm just kind of top of my head here. And so it is so much easier just to someone give you a list. But the reality is there's no life. Now, I do want to say this. And we're a pretty, uh, we're, we're what's called a low church. High church is very ritualistic, very formal, all the stuff that goes with it. We're kind of a low church. We come, we open the Bible, we talk, and these things here. I do want to communicate this. Ritual in and of itself is not wrong. Right? And so if you've got buddies that go to a high church and they have rituals in their service, you know, and you follow these particular things, in and of itself those things are not wrong. But when our submission to those rituals and traditions are caused by the fact that we drifted away from God. And so I do hear this a lot. Well, I like to go to this particular church because I feel close to God in that setting. I think that's dangerous. If you need to go into a church building and the candles have to be a certain way and the lighting has to be a certain way and the organ has to play a certain way for you to draw close to God, I think you should be concerned about that. Because what happens if somebody comes in and throws you into a prison somewhere? and you don't have access to those things anymore, then you can't get close to the Lord. That making sense? And so if those things now replace the nearness of your relationship with God, then you should be concerned because you're trading away the truth of God for a lie about God. And you're trading away relationship for ritual. And before long, you'll just be going through the motion. And so Jesus here, he confronts these men on this. They came to accuse him. He turns it back on them. In verse 6, and he begins by quoting the prophet Isaiah, and, but he calls them, notice, he calls them a hypocrite. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Oh, my goodness. He says, it's, as it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain do they worship me. Maybe put that in quotes, worship me, quote, unquote. Teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. Now, that comes from Isaiah chapter 29, the first portion of verse 13. And according to Jesus, these religious leaders here, they had begun to do exactly what Isaiah the prophet said the, peop the people of Israel would do. Pro Isaiah prophesied 700 years uh, before Jesus. And it was this tendency in the nation, it continued even into Jesus' day, where the very religious people, quote-unquote, professed great devotion to the Lord. And their actions might have indicated that. It, might, it, it appeared that way. That, boy, you guys really, you're devoted to God. But inwardly, they were corrupt and they were quite distant. As Jesus said, he called them a hypocrite. That's a strong word. There's a lot of things that we could be called in society. Most of us are highly offended to be called a hypocrite. 
Because at the very least, we're justified in the reason we do the things that we do. Who are you calling a hypocrite? Them's fighting words, you know, and you get all upset about it. I don't know about you, but it's certainly not what I want to be called, a hypocrite. And that's what Jesus calls them. The word in the Greek literally means an actor on a stage. That's what it refers to. And so here, Jesus sort of reaching for a word to describe these people, he chooses the word hypocrite. And, and we've come to interpret it the way it is. But then it referred to an actor that was on a stage, an actor who might put on a mask or might put on a facial expression if he wanted to uh, depict himself as being sad or put on a happy face for the happy scene or, or concerned face for the concern. You just put on the mask. And that's the part you begin to play. Jesus says that's what these men and, and are doing, these uh, Pharisees, these scribes. They're actors. But who they truly were, Jesus knows, was not the actions that they did, but the condition of their heart on the inside. That's what prompted them to do anything. And Jesus here, he points out that it's possible to have the image of being religious. And this, I think, should hit home for us. It's possible to have the image of being religious, the image of being spiritual, but in actuality be very far from the Lord. And I think a lot of us have discovered that. And sometimes we go through these little valleys where we feel that's the, uh, the image that we are communicating. Now, of course, outward behavior is important, right? Certainly so. Outward behavior is important. Jesus is not saying that one's actions do not matter. And we do hear that a lot, where people will act a certain way, do certain things, and then they'll say, well, what really matters is my it's my heart. God knows my heart. Oh, yeah, that's why you're treating people the way you're treating people? And that's why you're doing the things that you're getting yourself involved in? Certainly, our actions matter. So Jesus is not saying, do whatever you want as long as your heart is in a good place. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he is addressing is the tendency to do a bunch of things while your heart is in a very bad place. That's hypocritical. A hypocrite believes that he is a good man or a good woman, all they need to do is carry out the correct acts and practices, no matter the place that their heart uh, and their thoughts may be, which is exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes are doing. Jesus says to them, look, verse 8, he says, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. That's where their hypocrisy comes from, that they left the commandments of God so that they might hold the traditions of men. To put that another way, they disobeyed God's command to obey man's commands. I think that says it even more succinctly. They disobeyed God's commands to obey man's commands. And so no matter how noble their intentions may have been when they created those traditions, no matter how noble they may have been at that particular point in time, over time those traditions morphed actually into rebellion against God. And so again, traditions, rituals, all of those things are fine. But when they contradict God and his word, and one of them has to go, it should never be God's word or God's commands. It should be our traditions. Mark goes on. He's going to give us exhibit A. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about, he says. And so Jesus says to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, 
If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So here's a specific example of how their tradition made void the law of God. Now their tradition was that a person could dedicate a particular gift to God. Is that good? Yeah, that's good, right? If somebody wants to do that, you know, I'm going to give this unto the Lord. It's his. Many of us do that with our tithes and offerings as we're doing our checks and our budgets. I'm going to give this to the Lord. So there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. They didn't actually have to give this gift, but they felt they should. And so they dedicate a particular gift to God. Now, the term for that, it's found like 80 times in the Bible, uh, in the, it's a Greek word. It's found in the Old Testament uh, Greek version, which is called the Septuagint. And in the New Testament, it's found about 80 different times in there. There's nothing necessarily wrong with it. The term for that is a Greek word, korban. And again, Mark, he interprets it here, uh, given to God, he says. Now picture this following scenario, because this is what had developed over the time with this particular tradition. So a person has a good deal of wealth, And that wealth is allowing them to live quite comfortably with the various luxuries that wealth can buy. In fact, honestly, if we would describe it, they were living quite indulgently. Now, that person could continue to indulge themselves with that wealth and at the same time honor God. And here's how it works. They would pledge their wealth to the Lord through a gift to the local synagogue that they would give upon their death. Okay, so I can live my entire life with this way, I can spend all this money on myself, but I've made this pledge that any resources that remain when I die will go to God. That sounds very noble, doesn't it? In our will, we're going to give it all to the church. Well, that's fantastic. Now, those people are happy because they can indulge themselves. The priests, the synagogue leaders, they're delighted because they're expecting a big check when this person dies. And so both parties, it's a win-win. Now, in the event that this wealthy individual person, presumably elderly, his parents, in the event they reach out and they say, look, you know, Pop can't work as much as he used to. He's not able to bring in as much as he did. We're having a little bit of a hard time or whatever. And they reach out to their son, in this case, their daughter, whatever it may be. The son or the daughter can respond And they're thinking this through, and they're like, that means I have to give up that boat that I was planning on buying, oh, that fancy new car we were planning. And so they're, you know, they're figuring it all out, what this is going to mean to help mom or dad. And they they can turn to mom or dad and say, you know, we'd love to help you. You know, Sally and I, we've been talking it over, and we would really love to to help you guys. But unfortunately, we've, we've dedicated all of that to the Lord. And it would be wrong for us to break our vow to God. And so all the best to you. They can say to mom or dad, all the best to me. You know, come here, kid, and so on and so forth. You you see how they can get around it? And Jesus points out that despite Scripture clearly teaching that children are to honor their father and their mother, Exodus chapter 20, and Jesus points out that whoever reviles their father or mother, now that word reviles there, some of your versions will say curses their mother, And the picture is almost like, 
you know, a teenager getting to, into a fight with mom or dad and saying a curse, you know, blah, 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 you know, this kind of thing. Uh-oh, you're in trouble. The, the word there uh, that is translated curses or dishonors or reviles, it just simply means to treat with contempt, to treat with contempt. And so your elderly parents come to you and they have a need and you say, yeah, can't help you. You've treated them with contempt. And they came up with a creative way to reject the commands of God and at the same time look spiritual doing so. I've dedicated that unto the Lord. And Jesus said, you've rejected God's command. Again, they're actors pretending to be religious. They're hypocrites. Jesus goes on in verse 14. He called the people to him again. And he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And so Jesus gave an example. Now he goes back to the idea of eating food without going through the elaborate rituals. He says, hear me, all of you, and understand. It says, Mark tells us that he calls the people to him again. So he had been talking with the religious leaders. So again, here's a scenario. Jesus is dealing with people. Then the religious scenario, or the religious leaders come up. He responds to them, you hypocrites, you know, all that that is going on. Then he calls back out to the people. And he gathers the people to him again. That seems to tell me that when the religious leaders come, the people leave. Because they don't want to be around the religious leaders. Isn't that sad? But they were such a people that their very presence drove people away. The very people that they should have been ministering to don't want to be anywhere near them. I don't ever want to be like that as a Christian. Certainly not as a pastor or anything like that. I don't want to come into a room and people are like, let's get out of here. All right? And some of you are like, yeah, that's how we feel. I don't want to feel that way. Uh, and I don't want other people to feel that way. If you look at Christ, the masses were attracted to him. The unbelievers, if you will, or the people trying to figure these things out, were attracted to him. The religious leaders drove people away. And so taking leave then of the religious leaders, maybe they're still there, I don't know. Uh, but now he's talking with uh, the people. He says to them something that will fundamentally redefine the Judeo-Christian scenario. The Christian faith, essentially here, where Jesus being the fulfillment of the, the messianic law. It goes on, he says this, There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. That's a revolutionary idea for the Jew, who were the, the people that were primarily following Jesus here. Another commentator, William Barclay, he said this, Although it may not seem so now, this passage, when it was first spoken, was well nigh the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. Because Jesus was essentially saying, you can put the law aside and the Gentile can be declared righteous even without it. Whereas the Jew was convinced the two were linked one with the other. Now again, in the specific context, Jesus is talking about ceremonial cleansings and cleanliness as it pertained to eating food and something. But on a grander level, which will be unpacked and developed in the book of Acts, Jesus is essentially bringing an end to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament dispensation. And this is why many of us as, Jew, as Christians, I say Gentiles, that are followers of Christ, this is why we don't have to follow Old Testament law and Old Testament practices. If you have a chance this week, go and read Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. And that's where Jesus, uh, Peter, excuse me, he has the opportunity, he's called to go and to speak to this Gentile people. 
And prior to doing that, Peter's up, he's praying or whatever, lunchtime, and God begins to show Peter this vision. A blanket comes down, a picnic blanket comes down out of heaven, and there's all these unclean animals on there. And the Lord says to Peter, rise and eat. And Peter's like, I'm not going to do that. What are you nuts, God? He says, I've never had anything unclean. I'm a good Jew. And God says to him, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Then he will go on and he'll make the connection that Peter's going to go and he's going to minister to some Gentile people. And as he does, the Holy Spirit falls on them as well. And the conclusion there, Acts chapter 11, the conclusion is this. They glorified God saying, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Isn't that something? And so there's a change in the dispensation. Jesus is introducing that here. And he says it's not eating with unclean hands or some other Old Testament tradition or practice or law and all those things that go into our bodies that defile a person. It's what comes out of our bodies. It's not the food that we eat. He says the food that we eat, it goes into our body and then it's expelled from our body. But the heart, and the heart is the core of our being, isn't it? It says the heart has no interaction with that food whatsoever. And so how's it going to defile the heart? How's it going to defile the core of your being? The food that we do or do not eat has nothing to do with our uh, moral standing, our spiritual condition. Jesus' conclusion here is this. Uncleanness comes from within a person. Remember these super religious uh, scribes and Pharisees. How did they get stained? They went and interacted with sinners. So their sin, their stain came from without. Jesus is saying, nah, the stain's from within. Every one of us in this room is stained. Every one of us in this world is stained. Not because of the things we've interacted with on the outside. It's because we carry that stain around with us on the inside. The heart is what reveals who we truly are. In simple language here, a person is not bad because they do bad things. They do bad things because they're bad. That makes sense? We're not sinners because we have sinned during our lifetimes. We sin during our lifetimes because at our core, we are sinful. And that's why we have the gospel. Because there's nothing any of us sinners can do to, to work our salvation. It has to be done by another. Because at our core, we are a sinful people. And what these religious leaders had done is they concocted this legal system where they could ignore their heart position just as long as they followed some outward observances. And whatever their efforts might be, the core problem still remained. A stained heart. The source of their defilement. Jesus says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I love this. He gets into the house. And the disciples call out to him and they say, look, we, they say this in so many words. We heard what you said, but we're not quite sure we understand what you mean. Notice it says there, they ask him what he meant by the parable. I don't even think Jesus told him a parable. That's how off they are. They're like, oh, what? And so Jesus says, all right, let's, let's start again. And so he goes back to the biological process and he explains, he says, then you are also without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside can't defile him? It enters not his heart, but his stomach, and then it is expelled. Then he goes on from there, and he says in verse 20, it's what comes out of a person, that's what defiles him. He says, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, 
wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and it is they that defile a person. The rabbis believed that something had to taint a person to cause uncleanness. Jesus agreed. He just said, you're the thing to the rabbis. The difference is that Jesus believed that which tainted a person is inside of every one of us. Again, within all, he says, for from within come all of these things, evil thoughts, sexual morality, and so on and so forth. It's not the washing of hands, but the purity of the heart that matters. And thus, the truly religious person will deal with the matters of the heart. Now, I, I just want you to notice one important thing here. Notice what Jesus does in the list of these sins. And so he lists eight of them, ten of them there, whatever it may be. But in there, he lists some external behaviors. Things like theft, don't steal, murder, sexual morality, adultery. Those are external behaviors somebody could observe and say, I saw you do that, you're a sinner. But notice he also mentions not external behaviors, behaviors but inward attitudes as well. And so in there, he says things like covetousness, pride, foolishness, evil thoughts. See, those are things that you can have in your life and nobody else would know. Because you could put the mask on and Jesus says, no, they're core problems. And he calls them what? What's he call them there? Sin. These sins come from within, out of the heart of man. He calls them evil things. He makes no distinction between the sins of thought and the sins of deed. And this is why in another place he could say this, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Another time Jesus said this, you've heard that it was said to those of old you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and so on and so forth. And so pure attention to outward actions, whether it's not murdering or ceremonially washing your hands, it doesn't go far enough because the root of our problem is the core of our being, which is our heart. And so what do you call it? Our heart, our mind, our soul. It's our inward being of who we actually are. Every one of us in this room is capable of these things in this list. <gasps> I would never. If you give yourself to it, you allow your mind to go there, you allow your heart to go there, at the very least, in your mind you're figuring out ways how to murder a person. But if you give yourself over to these things, you will go down that path. It resides in every one of our hearts. None of us are basically good people. None of us are. And it's only as we bring ourselves into submission to Christ, as it begins to change who we are and empower us not to walk in our flesh, but according to his spirit. Amen? Amen. The capacity for all these things. And that's why it is so important for us to guard our hearts. Again, we could produce a list of things together. We'll work on it and come up with a list of 500 things every one of us to, should observe to become good Christians. And the reality is we'll figure out how to do the 501st thing. But if we can guard our hearts and we can come into the presence of the Lord and we live our lives in such a way where we say, Lord, search me, know me, find if there be any way within me that is astray and change me, God, from the inside out. That's how you can walk with Christ every day of your life to the end of your life. 
And that's our goal, isn't it? It's to run our race well. Amen? Amen. Amen. King Solomon said this, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Amen. Father, we thank you for the changing work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for the way in which, for so many of us in this room, you've opened up our heart, you've opened up our eyes, our mind, our soul, our spirit, whatever. Lord, you've opened it up to our need for you, and you've entered in. And Lord, you bring conviction, which we thank you for. Lord, we know your will is that we would be a different people than we were the day before, the year before, decade before, and you're transforming us into the image of your son. And so, Father, just in this fresh way, as we've uh, sort of observed these hypocritical Pharisees, Lord, we know our tendency is to put the mask on as well, to be hypocrites in so many ways. And so, Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity to dig into the word today and be reminded that it's about the heart and it's a matter of the heart. And so we bring it to you in a fresh way this morning. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. That we might walk in your ways for your glory and your good pleasure, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.